Welcome to the Central Community Church Podcast. We exist to be authentic followers of Jesus, leading others to follow Him by loving God, loving people, and serving our world. Then the Lord said to Moses, Rise up early in the morning and present yourself to Pharaoh, as he goes out to the water, and say to him, Thus says the Lord, Let my people go, that they may serve me. Or else, if you will not let my people go, behold, I will send swarms of flies on you and your servants and your people and into your houses. And the houses of the Egyptians shall be filled with swarms of flies and also the ground on which they stand. But on that day I will set apart the land of Goshen, where my people dwell, so that no swarms of flies shall be there, that you may know that I am the Lord in the midst of the earth. Thus I will Put a division between my people and your people. Tomorrow this sign shall happen. And the Lord did so. There came great, great swarms of flies into the house of Pharaoh and into the, his servants' houses. Throughout all the land of Egypt, the land was ruined by the swarms of flies. Then Pharaoh called Moses and Aaron and said, Go, sacrifice to your God within the land. But Moses said, it, will, it would not be right to do so, for the offerings we shall sacrifice to the Lord our God are an abomination to the Egyptians. If we sacrifice offerings abominable to the Egyptians before their eyes, will they not stone us? We must go three days' journey into the wilderness and sacrifice to the Lord our God as he tells us. So Pharaoh said, I will let you go to sacrifice to the Lord your God in the wilderness, only you must not go very far away. Plead for me. Then Moses said, Behold, I am going out from you, and I will plead with the Lord that the swarms of flies may depart from Pharaoh, from his servants, and from his people tomorrow. Only let not Pharaoh cheat again by not letting the people go to sacrifice to the Lord. So Moses went out from Pharaoh and prayed to the Lord. And the Lord did as Moses asked, and removed the swarms of flies from Pharaoh from his servants, and from his people. Not one remained. But Pharaoh hardened his heart this time also, and did not let the people go. Then the Lord said to Moses, Go into Pharaoh and say to him, Thus says the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, Let my people go that they may serve me. For if you refuse to let them go and still hold them, behold, the hand of the Lord will fall with a very severe plague upon your livestock that are in the field the horses, the donkeys, the camels, the herds, and the flocks. But the Lord will make a distinction between the livestock of Israel and the livestock of Egypt, so that nothing of all that belongs to the people of Israel shall die. And the Lord set a time, saying, Tomorrow the Lord will do this thing in the land, and the next day the Lord will do this thing. All the livestock of the Egyptians died, but not one of the livestock of the people of Israel died. And Pharaoh sent... And behold, not one of the livestock of Israel was dead. But the heart of Pharaoh was hardened, and he did not let the people go. And the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, Take handfuls of soot from the kiln, and let Moses throw them in the air in the sight of Pharaoh. It shall become fine dust over all the land of Egypt, and become boils breaking out in sores on man and beast throughout all the land of Egypt. So they took soot from the kiln and stood before Pharaoh. And Moses threw it in the air, and it became boils, breaking out in sores on man and beast. And the magicians could not stand before Moses because of the boils, 
for the boils came upon the magicians and upon all of the Egyptians. But the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, and he did not listen to them, as the Lord had spoken to Moses. Then the Lord said to Moses, Rise up early in the morning and present yourself before Pharaoh, and say to him, Thus says the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, Let my people go, that they may serve me. For this time I will send all my plagues on you yourself, and on your servants and your people, so that you may know that there is none like me in all the earth. For by now I could have put out my hand and struck you and your people with pestilence, and you would have been cut off from the earth. But for this purpose I have raised you up, to show you my power, so that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. You are still exalting yourself against my people, and will not let them go. Behold, about this time tomorrow I will cause very heavy hail to fall, such as has never been seen in Egypt from the day it was founded until now. Now therefore send, get your livestock and all that you have in the field into safe shelter, for every man and beast that is in the field and is not brought home will die when the hail falls on them. Then whoever feared the word of the Lord among the servants of Pharaoh hurried his slaves and his livestock into the houses. But whoever did not pay attention to the word of the Lord left his slaves and his livestock in the field. Then the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand toward heaven, so that there may be hail in all the land of Egypt, on man and beast in every plant of the field in the land of Egypt. Then Moses stretched out his staff toward heaven, and the Lord sent thunder and hail, and fire rained down from heaven. Ran. And the Lord rained hail upon the land of Egypt. There was hail and fire flashing continually in the midst of the hail, very heavy hail, such as had never been seen in all the land of, of Egypt since before it became a nation. The hail struck down everything that was in the field in all the land of Egypt, both man and beast. And the, the hail struck down every plant of the field and broke every tree of the field. Only in the land of Goshen, where the people of Israel were, was there no hail. Then Pharaoh sent and called Moses and Aaron and said to them, This time I have sinned. The Lord is in the right, and I and my people are in the wrong. Plead with the Lord, for there has been enough of God's thunder and hail. I will let you go, and you shall stay no longer. Moses said to him, as soon as, I have, as soon as I have gone out of the city, I will stretch out my hands to the Lord. The thunder will cease, and there will be no more hail, so that you may know that the earth is the Lord's. But as, you and your, as for you and your servants, I know that you do not, let, you not yet fear the Lord, your Lord God. The flax and the barley were struck down, for the barley was in the ear and the flax was in the bud. But the wheat of, and the emmer were not struck down, for they are late in coming up. So Moses went out of the city from Pharaoh and stretched out his hands to the Lord, and the thunder and the hail ceased, and the rain no longer poured upon the earth. But when Pharaoh saw that the rain and the hail and the thunder had ceased, he sinned yet again and hardened his heart, he and his servants, so that the heart of Pharaoh was hardened, and he did not let yet the people let the people of Israel go, just as the Lord had spoken through Moses. Then the Lord said to Moses, Go into Pharaoh, for I have hardened his heart and the heart of his servants, that I may show these signs of mine among them, and that you may tell in the hearing of your son and of your grandson how I have dealt harshly with the Egyptians and what signs I have done among them, that you may know that I am the Lord. So Moses and Aaron went into Pharaoh and said to him, Thus says the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, 
How long will you refuse to humble yourself before me? Let my people go, that they may serve me. For if you refuse to let my people go, behold, tomorrow I will bring locusts into your country, and they shall cover the face of the land, so that no one can see the land. And they shall eat what is left to you after the hail, and they shall eat every tree of yours that grows in the field. And they shall fill your houses and the houses of all your servants and of all the Egyptians, as neither your fathers nor your grandfathers have seen from the day they came on earth to this day. Then he turned and went out from Pharaoh. Then Pharaoh's servants said to him, How long shall this man be a snare to us? Let the men go, that they may serve the Lord their God. Do you not yet understand that Egypt is ruined? So Moses and Aaron were brought back to Pharaoh, and he said to them, Go serve the Lord your God. But which ones are to go? Moses said, We will go with our young and our old. We will go with our sons and daughters and with our flocks and herds, for we must hold a feast to the Lord. But he said to them, The Lord be with you. If ever I let you and your little ones go, look, you have some evil purpose in mind. No, go, the men among you, and serve the Lord, for that is what you are asking. And they were driven out from Pharaoh's presence. Then the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand over the land of Egypt for the locusts, so that they may come upon the land of Egypt and eat every plant in the land, all that the hail has left. So Moses stretched out his staff over the land of Egypt, and the Lord brought an east wind upon the land all that, day, all that day and all that night. When it was morning, the east wind had brought the locusts. The locusts came up over all the land of Egypt and settled on the whole country of Egypt, such, such a dense swarm of locusts as had never been before nor ever will be again. They covered the face of the whole land so that the land was darkened and they ate all the plants in the land and all the fruit of the trees that the hail had left. Not a green thing remained, neither tree nor plant of the field through all the land of Egypt. Then Pharaoh hastily called Moses and Aaron and said, I have sinned against the Lord your God and against you. Now therefore forgive my sin please only this once and plead with the Lord your God only to remove this death from me. So he went out from Pharaoh and pleaded with the Lord, and the Lord turned the wind into a very strong west wind, which lifted the locusts and drove them into the Red Sea. Not a single locust was left in the country of Egypt. But the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he did not let the people of Israel go. Then the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand toward heaven, that there may be darkness over the land of Egypt, a darkness to be felt. So Moses stretched out his hand toward heaven, and there was pitch darkness in all the land of Egypt three days. They did not see one another, nor anyone rise from his place for three days, but all the people of Israel had light where they lived. Then Pharaoh called Moses and said, Go, serve the Lord. Your little ones also may go with you. Only let your flocks and your herds remain behind. But Moses said, You must also let us have sacrifices and burnt offerings, that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God. Our livestock must also go with us. Not a hoof shall be left behind, for we must take... We must take of them to serve the Lord our God, and we do not know with what we must serve the Lord until we arrive there. But the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he would not let them go. Then Pharaoh said to him, Get away from me. Take care never to see my face again. For on the day you see my face, you shall die. Moses said, As you say, I will not see your face again. You are dismissed. So here's my predicament. Um, 
when you're doing, when you're working through narrative in the Bible, um, you, you can do larger, larger sections, right, than you can in, say, the book of Romans, where every half verse deserves a sermon. Um, so there's that, but, but this is, is narrative and then some, right? Like this is a lot of story here. We're covering a lot of plagues. And so, uh, herein lies the tension for the preacher is, is do you take this sort of 10,000 foot view, aerial view and, and try and touch on everything that's going on and give you a sense of that and and try and draw some conclusions or do you really zero in? So, um, what we're going to do this week is kind of the opposite of what we did last week. Last week, we, we saw the beginning of the plagues um, from, from um, Aaron throwing down his staff to the beginning of three plagues, and we talked about the fact that God wasn't simply bringing something bad to Egypt. It was much more cosmic than that. God was actually bringing these plagues in order to reveal that he is God and God alone. And that there are false gods that are being trusted in in Egypt, and they're not true. They're not real. They have no power like God Almighty has power. And so we began to look at those and the effects of that. We, we though, passed by something very big happening in the text last week that also um, is revealed again over and over and over again in this text. And that is the, the fact that Pharaoh's heart was hardened. Pharaoh hardened his heart. God hardened Pharaoh's heart. All of those things happening in repetition. We, we passed by all that last week, and that's where we are going to sit this week. So are there more plagues? Yes. And is God doing something in bringing all of these plagues? Like, why locusts? Why flies? It's not just because. It's because those opposed the false gods of Egypt and made it blatantly obvious that God is over all of the gods of Egypt. That continues to happen in this text, but we are gonna hang our hats on this troublesome theme of the hardening of Pharaoh's heart. So we see God said to Moses before he ever arrived in Egypt, back in Exodus chapter four, this is what, is what I am going to do. I am going to harden Pharaoh's heart. And this is what happens in the very first meeting with Pharaoh, not just the later ones, but in the earlier ones as well. Before the first plague ever came in Exodus seven thirteen, Pharaoh's heart was hardened and he would not listen to them as the Lord had said, it says. Then after the first plague in Exodus seven twenty two, the magicians of Egypt did the same by their secret arts. So Pharaoh's heart remained hardened and he would not listen to them as the Lord had said. And after the second plague in Exodus 8, 15, but when Pharaoh saw that there was a respite, he hardened his heart and would not listen to them as the Lord had said. And after the third plague in Exodus 8, 19, when the magician said to Pharaoh, they actually said, this is the finger of God. The priests of Pharaoh, the, the, the false gods, priests in Egypt turned to Pharaoh and they're like, yeah, this is God. But he would not listen to them as the Lord had said. He hardened his heart. And in every case, what the Lord had said was, I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. That's Exodus Exodus 4.21 and also 7 verse 3. The point is this, whether it says Pharaoh hardened his heart or that his heart was hardened, in each case it is happening as the Lord had said, and what he had said was, I will harden Pharaoh's heart. Which means that behind self-hardening, behind being hardened, is the plan and purpose of God. 
It is not described as a response to what Pharaoh does, as some argue. Pharaoh was rejecting God and rejecting God, and partway through the plagues, God decided to harden Pharaoh's heart in response. It's not the case, because it's not described as a response to what Pharaoh does, but as a sovereign rule over what Pharaoh does. This is an issue of God's sovereignty, and the Apostle Paul sees this and draws it out and states it in Romans 9.18 where he says, God has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. I was reading this passage and some commentary on it in Romans chapter 9, and the commentator said, Romans chapter 9, that chapter that every human mind and heart reels against more than any other, Romans chapter 9. The heart of it says, God has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. This is pretty uncomfortable. If you're anything like me, you'll graze over texts like this in your Bible reading plan or something and carry on. Quickly read that New Testament passage of the day. And the psalm, it's tempting to ignore it. This is one of the reasons we work through books of the Bible, chapters of the Bible, we just land here and we're forced to address this. So I've got some, a few asks of you. I'd like to ask a few things of you as we get started uh, in our time here. I, I ask first, please don't default into a particular camp. What I mean by that is a theological camp or um, Maybe you're a big fan of Spurgeon, so you're like, well, I'm just going to land where Spurgeon lands on all this. And, and your mind is already shut, or perhaps, you know, I love Greg Boyd, and I love the way that he views all of this in more of an Arminian type of way. And so he's my guy. I'm just going to land here on this, or whatever it might be. I ask you not to just already just land in a camp and not, not work with me here. Please don't default into a particular view that perhaps you've held without keen study. Secondly, please do not aim to put God in a small box. So we're going to address some big things that make us unsettled, that are uncomfortable, and we're tempted. We, we, what we do often is we throw the baby out with the bathwater, is we forget that all of these attributes of God still exist in the midst of this difficult one. Please do not put God in a small box. God is love. And so not even address the sovereignty of God because we believe something different and we won't, and, and we won't let those things even grind up against each other at all. We just kind of won't go there. So thirdly, it, it leads to this. Please understand that this is not all that can be said about God, what I'm going to say this morning, but simply one attribute among all of the others you know about him. So please hold those in the balance. Hold those all together. And fourthly, please allow any questions this sermon raises for you to lead you into study of God's Word for yourself. After this, please don't jump to Google. Jump to God's Word. Please don't jump to what some other guy wrote about this. Just jump into God's Word. If you'll see your outline, it's the most thorough outline I've ever created. You're welcome. (laughs) But it's not just my points. I've filled it with citations of Scripture because I'd love for you to have questions. I'm totally okay with saying, you're wrong, Pastor Matt. And I'm happy to talk about those things well after my vacation. (laughs) I'd love to chat with you about it. 
But dig into God's word, wrestle with the text. I've given you a ton of them. And be okay with questions that lead you to study and discovery and more knowledge of him. It's good to go here. So let's go here together. Let's pray and then let's get started. God, thank you for your word. Thank you for Exodus 8, 9, and 10. Thank you for your whole word. Father, we hold it high here. And we don't apologize for that. It forces us, nonetheless, Lord, to wrestle. We have a lot of questions. Father, I pray you'd minister to our hearts. I pray that what you declare about your word being sufficient, that, um, that it would minister to us, your spirit would minister to us. As a church, in, in, in conversations for our edification, that that would minister to us in light of this. Father, we need you. I pray too, Lord, that um, the posture of my heart, which I, I've prayed through all week, would be clear. I'm going to preach where I, I, I believe there's clarity in the scriptures and preach with boldness. And yet, Lord, I, I, I hope that this church that I love also hear my humility in my preaching today. For Father, I feel like we're just scratching the surface on some big doctrines and some beautiful things and some difficult things, Lord. I, I pray that we would be able to have a lot of grace for one another as we press in to know you more, to know you rightly. And I pray it in Jesus' name, amen. So let's start with this. We discover three purpose statements in our text today explaining why God plagued Egypt. Let me read all three and then we'll unpack them together. There are three reasons even within this text today that he gives for the plagues coming. Exodus 9 verse 14, for this time I will send all my plagues on you yourself, that's to Pharaoh, and on your servants and your people so that you may know that there is none like me in all the earth. Two verses later, for this purpose I have raised you up to show you my power so that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. So for Exodus 9, 29, Moses said to him, as soon as I have gone out of the city, I will stretch out my hands to the Lord. The thunder will cease and there will be no more hail so that you may know that the earth is the Lord's. There is a pattern that, that God continues to write in these verses that helps us to discover what God is doing in all of this, these purposes of the plagues. So these are all connected to one another, but they're subtly different. In verse 19, it's to demonstrate that there's no one like God in all the earth. There's no one like him. It's to show that God was greater than Pharaoh. In contrast to Pharaoh, not even knowing who God was nor caring, as he described in Exodus 5 verse 2. Pharaoh said, who is this God? I don't know him. The plagues answer Pharaoh's declaration that he didn't know God, the God of Israel. These plagues demonstrate that there's no one like God in all the earth. He will make himself known clearly. Secondly, it's to the praise of God's name in all the earth. And in Joshua chapter 9, verse 9, the Israelites come across 
across the Gibeonites. The Mennonites were off to the side as peacekeepers, wanted to have (laughs) nothing to do with any of it. They and their farmer sausage were there. (laughs) But listen, the Gibeonites said, they said to him, they said to Joshua, they said to them, from a very distant country, your servants have come because of the name of the Lord your God, for we have heard a report of him and all that he did in Egypt. In a land beyond Egypt, God was demonstrating his Praise, praise of him would be demonstrated in all the earth. Deuteronomy 6.21, 1 Samuel 4, verse 7, pick up on this as well, that others would know because of what he was doing. His purposes in the plagues, part of it was to the praise of God's name in all the earth. Thirdly, it was to emphasize God's unlimited authority over all of creation. See, he's not some tribal deity or one of dozens of gods of a particular people, but the ruler of the nations who will receive glory from creation. God's salvation of Israel and his vindication against Egypt had the same purpose, which was to reveal his lordship in all the earth. The purpose of the Exodus was the same purpose that God has for everything he does, to reveal his glory in both salvation and in judgment. And that's a difficult thing. Like we said last week, the plagues are God waging battle against the false gods of Egypt that all would see that there is one sovereign God over all things. And this is a good thing. It's a good thing that God would reveal that, that he's the God above all false gods. It is God's grace to reveal himself over and above false gods, whether it be the gods of Egypt or the gods of our society. It's gracious of God to reveal that money's an idol. Sex can be an idol. Power can be an idol. Comfort can be an idol. Fame can be an idol. God is gracious in blowing those up in our lives. God is gracious if he reveals that we're worshiping false gods. Is he not? Much worse is to be left to our idols. The purpose of the plagues was for God to reveal himself over and above these false gods. So when God does things for his glory and to make himself known, we need to remember that for attention to be drawn to Pharaoh for salvation and hope is a bad thing. For attention to be drawn to Hillary or Donald or Justin Trudeau or Bieber (laughs) for salvation and hope is a bad thing. But to be drawn to God for salvation and hope is a gracious thing. For God to desire that people see his glory, it's not ego, it's grace. Because as we see his revealed glory, we are better served to know and love and count on and believe and be grateful for his grace. So I've already mentioned the word sovereignty a few times, and we're going to kind of get after that here a little bit more. And so I want to give a a robust definition of it. And A.W. Pink wrote a a phenomenal book called The Sovereignty of God. Great place to look for a definition. So we'll throw it on the screen. Here's how A.W. Pink defines the sovereignty of God, which we'll spend most of our time talking about this morning. 
What do we mean by the sovereignty of God? We mean the supremacy of God, the kingship of God, the Godhood of God. To say that God is sovereign is to declare that God is God. To say that God is sovereign is to declare that he is the most high, doing according to his will in the army of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth so that none can stay his hand or say to him, what doest thou? To say that God is sovereign is to declare that he is the almighty, the possessor of all power in heaven and on earth so that none can defeat his counsels, thwart his purpose, or resist his will. To say that God is sovereign is to declare that he is the governor among the nations, setting up kingdoms, overthrowing empires, and determining the course of dynasties as pleaseth, pleaseth him best. To say that God is sovereign is to declare that he is the only potentate, the king of kings, and lord of lords. Such is the God of the Bible. God is sovereign. God is over all. So how does that work in the heart of a human being? Let's start with Pharaoh. Who hardened Pharaoh's heart? If God is over all and controlling all and sovereign over all things and nothing happens beyond his grist, beyond his grasp, beyond his doing, beyond his allowing, beyond his working, who hardens a heart? Let's look at who hardened Pharaoh's heart. Chapter 7, verse 3, God says, I will harden Pharaoh's heart. Chapter 9, verse 12, the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh. Chapter 8, verse 15, when Pharaoh saw that there was a respite after the frog's plague ceased, he hardened his heart and would not listen to them. Chapter 8, verse 32, Pharaoh hardened his heart in this time also after respite from the plague of flies. So who hardened Pharaoh's heart, God or Pharaoh? Yes. <laughs> Both. Both did. So let's start with Pharaoh hardening his own heart. Pharaoh saw signs, miraculous signs, signs that pitted Yahweh God, Almighty God, the God we worship, over the idolatrous false gods of Egypt. Pharaoh observed those signs. And in some cases, he exhibited some form of false repentance. Tell, tell your God to stop. And I'll relent and I'll let people go. But by the morning or by the time that there was respite, said he hardened his heart. He didn't really mean it. He didn't really want to step off the throne of his life and give God authority over him. He did not want to submit in worship to God. He wanted to continue to rule and reign in his own life. He saw signs. He gave false repentance and ultimately hardened his heart. He rejected God and didn't want to turn in repentance and faith. Abraham Kipper put it this way, we dare not forget that while God, according to the secret of his counsel, elects those who are to be saved, this same omnipotent God has made us morally responsible so that we are lost, not because we could not be saved, but because we would not. We would not. The sinner would not. The unrepentant heart would not repent. In other words, sinners are lost not because they're hardened. They are hardened because they are lost, and they are lost because they are sinners. 
Pharaoh hardened his own heart. Romans 1.18 puts it this way, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. This is their doing. This is their desire. For what can be known about God is plain to them. God has made it obvious that he exists and that he reigns because God has shown it to them for his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in light in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. There's no excuse. You can't say, well, God hardened my heart. I couldn't believe. God revealed himself and sinners willfully choose to remain in that sin and they are without excuse in a very real way. Verse 21, for although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking. And their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and reptiles. And the same is true for everybody ever since. Well, we haven't observed ten plagues, God has revealed his power and nature so much so that everyone is without excuse. And we can willfully reject God. For Pharaoh himself hardened his own heart. So this is to show that we're not robotic or fatalistic. Right? That this is all just hardwired, nothing we can do. We'd have to throw out passages of Scripture that say, what we do absolutely makes a difference. How we respond absolutely has implications. And yet, now we've got to add this level of complexity. God hardened Pharaoh's heart. The reason God hardened Pharaoh's heart was to demonstrate his power and magnify his name. Romans 9 verse 17 picks up on this. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills and he hardens whomever he wills. The same gospel, the same message of God, word of God, that saves some sinners, confirms others in their unbelief. God's word has this double effect. Some hearts are softened by it, while others are hardened. Charles Spurgeon put it this way, the same sun which melts wax hardens clay. And the same gospel which melts some persons to repentance hardens others in their sins. We see this all over scripture from the hearers of Moses and the prophets to those who witnessed the miracles and words of Jesus to the apostles, they would proclaim and some would believe and some would not. Let's understand this rightfully. Rightly, they willfully rejected Christ and God simultaneously hardened their hearts. Pharaoh willfully hardened his heart and God decisively hardened his heart. I gave you bracketed passages for both reasons. It clearly says one and it clearly says another. It's not one or the other, it's both. And we're getting into a little bit of mystery here, but we can't throw one out for the sake of the other. We have to hold the tension here. But if God hardens heart, hardens whom he wills, 
It leads to some questions, doesn't it? For example, is God unjust? If I, if I start to track this down, Matt, like, God's starting to sound pretty unjust. Well, let's, let's look at this from a, a few angles. And just so you know, talking to a gentleman earlier, he said, you know, you could, you could teach a class for a year on the sovereignty of God, and you're, you're somewhere further along, but we can keep going on it. Like, like, so I recognize the tension. I'm just trying to, to, um, to get us in, and I anticipate you studying more. So let's look at this first question. Is God unjust in all of this then if he hardens hearts? Well, first, according to God's justice, all human beings deserve hell, not heaven. Romans chapter, chapters 1 through 3 um, paint this picture really clearly, which is um, Paul is writing about Gentiles. I read part of Romans chapter 1 here, right? that they reject God willfully, they are sinners, and they do not repent, and they do not turn to God, and therefore they deserve punishment. And there were some Jewish hearers that at that point would say, yes, that is correct, that is correct about those Gentiles. And then Paul writes <laughs> Romans chapter 2 and says, you think you can judge them because you are morally upright? You're not morally upright. You, you, you fail in following the law, and you too deserve judgment. And then he, he summarizes it all in Romans chapter 3 and says, none is righteous, no, not one, no one understands, no one seeks God, no one seeks good. None is righteous, no, not one. So you want to talk about justice? According to God's justice, all human beings deserve hell, not heaven. So it's not consistent with the meta-narrative of the Bible to insist that if God be a God of love, that he must save everybody. That's getting into the universalist view that says if God is truly loving and if he's truly just, all will get heaven. But if we truly want to track down justice, what's just is God putting the punishment of our sins upon us. But for the grace of God in Jesus who took the punishment for us. So is God unjust? Romans 9.14 actually asks the question. Paul anticipates the question. He actually says, is there injustice on God's part in all of this then? You know what his response is? By no means. So if there's this inclination in your heart, God's unjust here, God's unjust here, Paul emphatically declares, by no means is God unjust. Secondly, is God unjust? Salvation is a matter of mercy, not justice. See, salvation is due entirely on God's mercy. These are two categorically different things. And if we think we are owed mercy, we're back to should and must. And if God should or must do something, let's remember that it's justice that must or should happen unless God intervenes with grace. It's not justice that we need from God. It's grace. And mercy and justice are categorically different things. We want to talk about justice Look at Romans 1 to 3 and we'll see what we're owed. I want to talk about mercy. Read the latter part of Romans chapter 3. Thirdly, God's sovereignty is never pitted against human responsibility. I really want you to hear this. God's sovereignty is never pitted against human responsibility in the scriptures. So let's not make it do that. So God is sovereign, yes. He's in control and he's over all things. And we are responsible, yes. See, we shouldn't pit those things against each other because the Bible doesn't. Let me give you an example. In the latter chapters of, of the book of Genesis, there's a story about this pompous younger brother named Joseph 
who likes to tell his brothers, you know, I had a dream. You were bowing to me. It was an awesome dream. And it says that these brothers hated Joseph. They hated him. So much so that they wanted to kill him and they were planning to kill him. But just so a caravan of slave traders comes by and they decide, you know, let's not have his blood on our hands. Let's sell him and make profit off our brother instead of killing him. So they do. They go back to their dad and lie about their brother that he was killed by a wild beast. And then there's this declaration in Genesis chapter 50, verse 20. What, what you meant for evil, yeah, God meant that for good. And we see in the story as you track it in, in, in Genesis that the brothers, there's very real sin of theirs. They sold their brother. They hated their brother. They lied to their dad. And there's a beautiful story of repentance in those chapters. A very real sin that they had committed and they willfully committed. And yet at the same time, God didn't just spin a situation for good. He was in the midst of it the entire time as well. You meant every step of that for evil. I meant every step of that for good. And the same is happening here. Pharaoh was hard-hearted towards God and God gave him the desires of his heart. A hard heart towards God that Pharaoh is held responsible for. All the while, it was God also who hardened his heart. And both of those things are happening here Not one after the other. God declared before the first plague came, I will harden his heart. So there's tension here, yes. You might ask at this point, why are you even delving into this? What is this going to achieve? What are we going to get from this? Let's talk about why this matters. And then let's conclude with where we go from here. Four reasons why it matters. And there are more. First, the sovereignty of God encourages humility and love for God. Let me read Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8. Some of you memorized this. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. It's not a result of works. It's not merit. Nothing you've done so that no one may boast. So why did God ordain that salvation would be a free gift apart from any merit, any goodness, anything you've done or could do? Why is it separate? He says in this instant, it's separate. It's given as a gift that you have nothing to do with so that you won't boast about it. So Emily and I have a compassion child and we we met our compassion child earlier this year. Obviously before we met our compassion child, we signed up to have this compassion child and his name's Victor. And we were, you know, you fill out the form and it gets to this point where you can give kind of additional gifts, like a birthday gift and a Christmas gift and a family gift. And so in checking off those boxes, here's what I didn't do. Birthday gift, check, if he gets an A in math. Christmas gift, check, if he respects his mom. Family gift, check, if they love their neighbors. Didn't do that. Child in utter need. I have the ability to rescue, to love, to just use resources to bless him. I don't care if he gets an A in math. It's not the point. It's not why he's getting a birthday gift. See, it has nothing to do with what he's achieved. It's a free gift. And so when we get to meet our compassion child, there's joy and happiness. And we don't really know, nor do we ask, 
how he's doing on all kinds of things that we would gauge as successes or merits. Simply love him. Simply support him. So the sovereignty of God encourages humility. So if you look down your nose at someone who doesn't believe, you don't grasp this verse or God's work of salvation in your life. There's no room for boasting. To see that God is sovereign and has saved you as a gracious gift produces such humility. Such humility. That leads us to the second point. Leads us to rejoicing. The sovereignty of God enriches awe and worship of God. These truths make me exalt God as the author and sustainer of all things and inspire awe, reverence, and genuine worship. Martin Luther makes a really interesting point when he says, if I am ignorant of God's work and power in my life and all that he's done, if I'm ignorant of how much he's worked and orchestrated in my life, I am ignorant of God himself. And if I do not know God, I cannot worship, praise, give thanks, or serve him, for I do not know how much I should attribute to myself and how much to him. Therefore, we need to have in mind a clear-cut distinction between God's power and ours. And God's work and ours, if we would live a godly life. Leads us back to Ephesians chapter 2. For by grace you have been saved. Through faith, and this is not your own doing, it's a gift of God, not a result of work, so that no one may boast. What part in that is God's and what part in that is mine? And if he gets glory in my salvation, that changes our posture That changes the way we define worship. There's a story in Luke chapter 7 about a woman who was a noted sinner, and she came and fell at the feet of Jesus and worshipped him. And others were disgusted by it. What's she making such a fool of herself for like that? Essentially, Jesus said, if our awe and worship of God is little, it's because we think we have been given, forgiven little. And so we love little and we worship little. But for those of us who understand God's grace in saving wretches like us, we worship much. We love much. And we are like the prostitute who falls at the feet of Jesus and says, you saved me? Praise God. And that magnifies Jesus. Thirdly, the sovereignty of God gives confidence in evangelism. Now, some would say in the sovereignty of God, this is the hyper-Calvinist view, that the hyper-Calvinist view would say, God will do what he does. He's sovereign and he's in control. I'm, so I'm going to kick my feet up and I don't need to preach and I don't need to share and I don't need to go across the world and I don't need to love my neighbor. I don't need to do any of that stuff because God's going to save who he saves. That's defined as hyper-Calvinism. God will elect who he elects so I can just not worry about it. But that's not what we're talking about here at all. In fact, the sovereignty of God gives confidence in evangelism and even promotes it. I'm confident that the Apostle Paul, wherever he went, had confidence that God would save all, maybe, some, absolutely. So he went to city after city after city and church after church after church was built because he had confidence in the sovereignty of God in what he proclaimed, that he will save sinners. And there's a means by which that happens. And God's sovereign control doesn't exclude the uses of the means by which God works. 
And the proclamation of the gospel is one of those means. So when Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1.21, for since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God, listen to this, through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. It's almost comical. Through the folly of what we preach, trying our best to string together the words of the gospel that we could share, God uses that. Our best efforts our faithful efforts, he uses it for his saving work. You go preach. You're probably going to screw up half of it. I'm going to save him. The sovereignty of God gives confidence in evangelism. It's not all up to you. You're just called to go be faithful and try your best to share Jesus. We can be fearless in knowing that all who are called by God will come to him. And trust that he uses the means by which he declares in his word to use. And that involves us. That's what Christians in Iran are doing right now. Just read this yesterday. Iran became a hard-lined Islamic regime in 1979 that in that year kicked out all foreign missionaries, outlawed evangelism, banned Bibles, and killed pastors. In 1979, there were roughly 500 Iranian Christians in Iran. Today, it is estimated that there are nearly one million. More Iranians have become Christians in the last 20 years than in the last 13 centuries. More Iranians have become Christians in the last 20 years than in the last, I guess I'm doing this, 13 centuries. (laughs) What? And they just, and those are the years that they've closed their country completely to the gospel. Let me read you three stories of what's happened in the last 20 years that just paints a picture. Cameron was a violent man who used to sell drugs and weapons. One day, a friend gave him a New Testament. After reading for five consecutive days, Cameron gave his life to Jesus. When his family and friends saw his transformed life over the ensuing months, many of them also came to faith. A church now meets in Cameron, the ex-drug and weapon dealer's house. Riza was a mullah, a Muslim scholar who hoped to be an ayatollah, a Shiite leader. And one day while study, check this out, while studying at an Islamic seminary in Iran, found a New Testament that had been boldly left in the library. Can I just stop and say that's one of the coolest things I've heard in a long time? There was a dude or a wonderful gospel woman who brought a New Testament, which is banned, into an, Iranian, an Islamic seminary and left it there to be found. And Riza picked it up while he was studying to be a Shiite leader. And out of curiosity, picked it up and was deeply shaken. Over time, he fell in love with Jesus. Today, Riza is a trained church planter serving in the Iranian region. One more. Fatima's earliest memories were of being raped by her brothers. At age 11, she was sold in marriage to a young drug addict who abused her and then divorced her when she was 17. Upon returning home, she was raped again until she decided to leave. On the streets, she heard the gospel preach and she trusted Jesus. In time, she married a Christian man and as they were receiving training in evangelism and church planning, Fatima felt called to go back home and witness to her family. 
her entire family repented and gave their lives to the Lord. And the first church Fatima and her husband planted was in her childhood home. The writer of this article concluded it this way. The story God is writing for Iran reminds us that we have every reason to rejoice and remain confident in our sovereign Lord and the power of the gospel. Jesus will build his church. It's a promise. Fourthly, the sovereignty of God assures that everything is from him and through him and to him. That's Romans eleven thirty six. This helps us with suffering and death. This helps us in the midst of suffering and death. Doesn't mean we're going to enjoy suffering. Doesn't mean sorrow won't come. But it, what it does mean is that we understand those things in light of God's sovereign purposes. In the Lord of the Rings, after the ring is destroyed at Mount Doom, Samwise Gamgee says, as he wakes up, surprised to be alive, Are all this, is everything sad going to come untrue? Is everything sad going to come untrue? Romans chapter 8 puts it this way, For those who love God, all things work together for good. Before Emily and I had our first son, um, we had a miscarriage. And well-meaning people in our lives, um, well-meaning people in our lives wanted to give supportful, support, support, supporting words, and, and, and some of those words was that, that wasn't God, or God has nothing to do with that. And I understand what they mean and what they're getting at. But underneath it, there's this sentiment that says God only brings good things. And that was a bad thing. God had nothing to do with that. That's not comforting. What's comforting is to know that God is sovereign over all things. That sin has infested the world, yes. But remains subservient to God's control. Meaning at worst, God will redeem all the broken things and make the sad things come untrue. And at best, will even turn tragedy into triumph. A high view of the sovereignty of God assures that everything is from him and through him and to him, that we can trust him. For he is completely in control, nothing's out of his grasp. Finally, where do we go from here? With three minutes and 28 seconds left. Where do we go from here? Let me read you Hebrews chapter 3, starting in verse 12. <clears throat> it's in reference, the, the writer of the, Hebrews, uh, of the book of Hebrews is writing in response to the fact that the Israelites who observed these plagues, and even the plagues we heard about today, were spared from the plagues. They were happening everywhere else in Egypt, but not, not where they were located by the Nile. They were spared from it, and then the Red Sea parted, and they went through it, and Pharaoh's army was destroyed in it. They were set free, and then they began to wander in the wilderness, and their wilderness wandering turned into idolatry and idolatrous hardened hearts, even the Israelites. So we pick it up in Hebrews 3, where he writes pastorally to us not to be that way. 
and says this, take care, brothers, take care, church, take care, Christians, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God, but exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin, for we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. As it is said today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. God uses means, and I see a few of them in this text. Very real. We have very real human responsibility and very clear instructions to the church to help us not be hard-hearted people. Here's the first one. Take care that you do not develop an evil, unbelieving heart. So search your heart. And search your heart often. Repent often. Pursue Christ. Do you sense an unbelieving heart welling up in you? Pray that prayer we see of that believer in Mark who says, I believe, Jesus, help my unbelief. My eyes are fixated on you for help, for hope. I've got questions? Yeah, I've got questions. Help my unbelief. I'm looking to you to guide me. Take care that you do not develop an evil, unbelieving heart. Search your heart. Repent often. Pursue Christ and ask him to help your unbelief. Secondly, be accountable to and daily encouragers of one another. Verse 13 of Hebrews 3 says, exhort one another every day, as long as it's called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. It says that God uses the church as community, the church as family. You see somebody struggling in the family? You come along and say, can I encourage you, brother, in the faith? Can I encourage you, sister, in the faith? Can I give you some encouraging words that are just in my heart for you? Can I just tell you a truth about Jesus? Do you want to just tell me all the doubts and struggles you've got? I want to hear and I want to encourage you. There is an exhortation to us to live that way as a family of faith. Christian community, accountability, and encouragement in the gospel. Thirdly, it's just an exhortation. Do not harden your heart. Don't do it. Don't harden your heart to God in blame, bitterness, cynicism, but come to him. Do not harden your heart. Do not harden your hearts in the midst of suffering, sin, or sickness. I'll close with this. Do not harden your hearts in suffering, sin, or sickness. Look at suffering. God's sovereignty in our suffering Job's wife says, curse God and die, Job. Everything's gone wrong in your life. And Job responds, shall we accept good from God and not trouble? That is profound. Everything's gone wrong for Job. And his wife's saying, curse God. Curse him. And die. Job's like, give me a godly wife, please. (laughs) shall we accept good from God and not trouble the answer is no see when we endure grief loss and difficulty rather than hardening our hearts we we are accepting God's will we are saying you're sovereign we are trusting again in that routine of humility worship confidence and evangelism and trust that God's working all things 
How about in sin? Sin can harden hearts. We have opportunity for repentance or opportunity to harden our hearts around these things that we covet. These sins that we truly, if we're honest, love more than God. That's why we keep going back to them. We can be like David and turn to God in repentance. He said in Psalm 38, in light of being a cheating murderer, said, I confess my iniquity and I am sorry for my sin. As he prayed genuine repentance for his sin rather than letting his heart be hardened around it. He was able to remain soft-hearted towards God. And what about in sickness? There's this story about Naaman, a foreign leader who had leprosy. It's a story that's in 2 Kings 5. And Naaman goes to the Yahweh, God Almighty, for healing. And he's told, I think by Elisha, to go and bathe. And he does, and he comes out of the water, and he's healed. Instead of turning to God in the midst of suffering, sin, and sickness... Pharaoh hardened his heart to each one of those. Do not do the same. Jesus suffered for us and is sovereignly in control over our suffering. Jesus defeated our sin for us so that in the midst of our sin, we can turn to him. And by his wounds, we are healed. He brings healing because he was killed. God's sovereignty and gospel are glorious. I want you to see it. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart. Let's pray. God, you are glorious. Your gospel, the good news that Jesus saves a wretch like me, is glorious. And Lord, we recognize that there are hard-hearted people all around us, and our own propensity is to be so, but for your intervening grace. Father, would we hold that humbly, knowing that our salvation comes from you as a gift, and would we glorify you in that? Oh, Father, I pray that we would follow these exhortations in Hebrews 3. That everywhere there is a hard heart, we would plead for that heart. We would pray and preach and encourage that hard heart. Father, I pray that in grappling with your sovereignty, we would recognize there's some mystery here. And that would lead us into even greater awe. In our questions, Lord, I pray we'd point those towards you and godly people in our lives that we can discover more about this with. There's so much more to say. I pray, God, by seeing your sovereign will and control over all things, that we would place our lives submitted into your hands. Use us how you will for your great ends. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.